Let's open our word this morning to Genesis chapter 49. It was encouraging to hear that uh, Paul and Kiki's pastor is taking them through the life of Joseph. I don't know if they're going through the uh, Genesis, but at least the life of Joseph, right? Or Genesis itself? Genesis. Okay. Where are you in Genesis? 48. 48. Okay. We're... <laughs> Here you go. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, just as a reminder, last week uh, we started through this one large section, two chapters of Genesis, chapter uh, 47, end of 47, chapter 48, chapter 49, which is really just one long um, uh, pericope or a section of scripture hangs together, but we broke it up into two. And last week, we looked at really section 48, uh, chapter 48, and and this section of scripture is uh, Jacob's last words, his dying words. It starts out with him saying that he knows he is dying, and it ends in chapter 49 with him uh, drawing up his feet into the bed and dying, uh, giving his last words. And uh, we broke it up into two. And last week we looked at chapter 49, and in chapter 49 we saw that Manasseh and Ephraim have come before him, and Jacob wants to bring them into the family of God. That's really what we talked about, coming into the family of God uh, last week. And we saw there that he adopts them formally into the, into the family, using the mine language, they are mine, in the formal adoption ceremony we see there in, in verses 8, 9, 10, 11, and 12. He gives them equal footing, the privileges that come along with adoption. Equal footing with, with uh, Reuben and with Simeon in that generation. So he brings them up and puts, gives them equal footing with his uh, children. And then he also teaches that great principle of grace that... How you come into the family, you're adopted into the family, and you get the full rights and privileges of being in a family, but also coming into the family, you're brought in by grace. And that is that great crossing of hands that we talked about last week. You know, both Joseph and Manasseh were expecting Manasseh to get the blessing. And Jacob crosses his hands. Says, No, you can never expect grace. You can never earn grace. You never deserve grace. So the wonderful lesson there. But here in chapter 49, we have uh, another lesson that Jacob wants to teach his family. And we have the last dying words of Jacob. So let's read them open with me and track along with me as I read chapter 49. So he has just accomplished that with Ephraim and Manasseh. And then God's word says, Then Jacob called his sons and said, Gather yourselves together that I may tell you what shall happen to you in the days to come. Assemble and listen, O sons of Jacob. Listen to Israel your father. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, and the fruit of my strength, prominent in dignity and preeminent in power, unstable as water. You shall not have preeminence. Because you went up into your father's bed. Then you defiled it. He went up into my couch. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence. 
are their swords. Let my soul not come into their counsel, O my glory, be not joined to their company. For in their anger they killed men, and in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I'll divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and a lioness. Who dares to rouse him? And the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until the tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples, binding his foal to a vine and the donkey's colt to choice vine. He shall wash his garments in wine and his vestiture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. Zebulun shall dwell at the seashore. He shall become a haven for ships and his border shall be at Sidon. Issachar is a strong donkey. Crouching between the sheepfolds, he saw that a resting place was good and that the land was pleasant. So he bowed his shoulders to bear and became a servant at forced labor. Dan shall judge his people. As one of the tribes of Israel, Dan shall be a serpent in the way, a viper in the path that bites the horse's heels so that the rider falls backward. I wait for your salvation, O Lord. Raiders shall raid Gad, but he shall raid at their heels. Asher's food shall be rich, and he shall yield royal delicacies. Naphtali is a doe let loose that bears beautiful fawns. Joseph is a fruitful bough. A fruitful bough by a spring that's branches run over the wall. The archers bitterly attacked him, shot at him, and harassed him severely. Yet his bow remained unmoved. His arms were made agile by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel, by the God of your father who will help you, by Almighty who will bless you with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that crouch beneath, blessings of the breast and of the womb and blessings of your father are mighty beyond the blessings of parents up to the bounties of the everlasting hills. May they be on the head of Joseph and on the brow of him who is set apart from his brothers. Benjamin is a ravenous wolf in the morning devouring the prey and at evening dividing the spoils. All these are the twelve tribes of Israel This is what their father said to them as he blessed them, blessing each with the blessing suitable to him. Father God, I pray that you will help me preach your word competently. Spirit, use these black ink words on this page and supernaturally use them in people's hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Thomas. Halliburton, a great Scottish preacher of the 1700s, was dying and there was somebody standing next to his bed and he turned to him and said, when I fall so low that I can no longer speak, 
I shall show you a sign of triumph if I am able. Just before he died, he lifted up his clasped hands in victory and exhaled his last. So far in Genesis, we have not heard anyone's dying words. Isn't that remarkable? Nobody's dying words. Not Adam's. Boy, wouldn't you want to hear those? Not Noah's, not Abraham's, not Isaac's. But here we have Jacob's last words to his sons, and they're meticulously brought and preserved for us. Why? Because God wants us to learn how certain his words are. The first thing he wants us to learn is how certain his words are, the certainty of God's word. Verse 1, if you look at verse 1 there in chapter 49, it says right there that he gathers his sons that I may tell you what shall happen to you in the days to come. Jacob has gathered his sons and he wants to tell them something in the future. This is prophecy. He brings his, his sons together and he is, this, this chapter is one long massive prophecy divided into 12 parts. If you look at Zebulun and Issachar, they would have success in bounty, apparently. That's what, he's, that's what he's prophesying over those two sons. Issachar, between two sheep fields or, or saddlebags, that's a symbol of, of, of bounty and plenty. And Zebulun, living toward, better probably uh, translation there, towards the sea, positions them well for trade. Both of these giving the impression of worldly success. But Issachar, if you notice there, he is going to, he, he's going to indenture himself in some way. Prompting Ian Duguid to write, it seems the earthly lot of both of these tribes would be materially pleasant, but their blessing implies that there would be a great cost to seeking treasure in this world. He then speculatively writes this, Did they sell their souls like so many others, not for the whole world, but merely for the prospect of a comfortable and easy life? Did Zebulun and Issachar do as so many of us do today, store up treasures on earth where moth eats and rust devours, put our hopes in dreams and faith in the things of this world? Some of these prophecies are nebulous in their fulfillment. We don't know how they were fulfilled. While Asher and Naphtali seemed to, the, the prophecy about them seemed to point to a, a more positive future, those of Benjamin and Dan seemed to be more menacing. The images of a ravenous wolf, wolves of Benjamin and a serpent like Dan seemed to point to an ominous future. This is counterbalanced with, with Joseph. Exceedingly positive blessing here. There you see, and when he's blessing Joseph, he's re, there's really three parts to that blessing. One that recounts his life up to that point, verses 22, 23, and 24, from pit to palace. Paul did a great job in Sunday school of, of really distilling down the life of Joseph. And secondly, in verses 24 and 25, we see that there 
the, the proclaims of the source of his strength in the pit, the source of his strength in the palace has been the Lord Almighty. There we have five images of the strength of God. A mighty one, a shepherd, a stone of Israel, God the Father and Almighty. That was Joseph's real strength in his life, is God. And then lastly, the words of encouragement to look to God for the blessings. He's encouraging his son Joseph to look to God for the blessings, the fivefold blessing that Jacob recounts there. James Boyce writes about that. Jacob is telling Joseph that the greatest blessings of God are spiritual because these alone really last. It's a great simple truth there, isn't there? Perhaps the most significant prophecy is that of Judah in verses 8 through 12. Jacob gives the tribe of Judah preeminence among his brothers, doesn't he? Firstborn status. He says there, your brothers will praise you. They will bow down to you. In other words, the honor is being taken away from Reuben and given to Judah. And that's exactly what happened. Judah became the lead tribe in Israel. Not Reuben, not Simeon, not Levi, but fourth-born Judah. The southern kingdom was even named after him. Judah, along with Benjamin, were the only faithful tribes. The ten tribes were taken away, and they alone were left. And after the exile, they alone came back. Here, Jacob is foretelling the future of his sons, and we love prophecies, don't we? We love prophecies. We love to look at the future. We love to know the future. We, we desire to have that certainty, don't we? In a recent article in Futurist magazine, writer Laura Lee catalogs some of the worst predictions of the future. Listen to these. Quote, Inventions have long since reached their limit, and I see no hope further for their developments. That was a Roman engineer in 100 AD. <laughs> Quote, It doesn't matter what he does, he'll never amount to anything. That's... Albert Einstein's first grade teacher. 1914, a British journalist, H.N. Norman, proclaimed there will be no more wars among the six great powers. Computer scientist John Newman said in 1949, it would appear we have reached the limits of our, the possible achievement of computer technology. Secretary of State Dulles in 1954 said, the Japanese don't make anything people in this world will ever buy. And in 2008, experts at Goldman Sachs predicted that oil prices would surge over $200 a barrel, and in six months, they were worth $34 a barrel. So why do we keep listening to these experts, these predictions, even when they're wrong? According to journalist Dan Gardner in his book, Future Babel, human beings hate uncertainty. Whether bleak or sunny, Gardner wrote, convictions about the future satisfy our hunger for certainty. We are a people that desperately want certainty, don't we? We look for certainties 
that we can bend our life around, don't we? We want certainties that we can depend on. We want things that we can stand on that are rock solid. And the only certainties are found in the word of God. The ones that we can actually bend our life around, shape our life. This is what God wants us to see, one of the big lessons of this chapter. God's word never fails. The promises of God, we also call them prophecies here, the promises of God are rock solid. You can place the weight of your hopes and your dreams and your life on them. Prophecy in Scripture gives us certainty in God's words. And that's really a masterstroke of Satan in the last 150 years. He has really chipped away at this certainty of God's word, starting in the mid-19th century with the Wellhausen School of Higher Criticism. That old liberal school of liberalism began chipping away at Bible prophecy. See, they looked at by a man looks at Bible prophecy and says, you can't know the future that well. The Bible accuracy in prophecy was so great that, that man looks at it and goes, it can't be that good. You can't get it right this much. So it couldn't have been written when it, they say it was written. Moses couldn't have written these books in the wilderness and known all of this. It had to have been written much much later. In other words, they tell us the Bible isn't telling the future, it's recording history. And that's just not true. We serve a supernatural God, a God who stands over and above history, who holds history in the palm of his hands. I have, as you walk into my office, a big picture of William Blake's God measuring the universe. And underneath it is Isaiah 40, uh, verse 12, which says, He has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand. The breadth of his hand marks out the heavens. It's a reminder to me that God stands above it all. He holds everything in the palm of his hand. The past, the present, and the future. He's the absolute sovereign now. And when he promises, he absolutely fulfills. And when he prophesies, he always brings it to fruition. God's promises and his prophecies bring us certainty. Something we can actually shape our life around. We also see very clearly here not only that we can trust in God's word, but also we see in our chapter here the consequences of sin. I mean, that just stands right out from the very beginning. On February 12th, 2014, a sinkhole developed underneath the National Corvette Museum in Bowling Green, Kentucky. Did you know about this? And it swallowed eight really irreplaceable Corvettes just fell into the sinkhole. Everybody at the time said the sinkhole came out of nowhere. 
Well, they're wrong. The hole appeared suddenly, yes, but the process of that sinkhole developing had gone on for years and years and years. The underground erosion was invisible, but it was there all along. In applying sinkholes to our sin, it tells us two things. First, something can look just perfectly fine on the outside. But underneath, there are major problems going on. The second thing is, our lives are affected by the sin choices we make, which eventually have devastating effects. In the prophecy over Jacob's first three sons, we see a sinkhole just appear beneath their feet. The sinkhole that opens up under Reuben's feet is his firstborn status will be taken away. Why? We're told there, he went up into his father's bed. In chapter 35, after Jacob's beloved wife Rachel dies on their way back to Bethlehem, there's a shocking single verse that we didn't cover because it's covered here. And that verse tells us that Reuben went up and slept with Jacob's concubine, Bilhah. Now, this was a heinous act of adultery, sin in and of itself, very reminiscent of 1 Corinthians 5, where, where a man is, is sleeping with his stepmother. But the sin goes even deeper than that. You see, what Reuben was doing there is the same thing Absalom was going to do years and years later with his father, King David. If you remember that, in 2 Samuel 16, he, he takes his, his uh, father's, David's uh, concubines, up to the roof of the palace, and he begins sleeping with them in the sight of all of Israel. Why would he do something like that? For the same reason that Reuben sleeps with Bilhah. That is saying, that is proclaiming that he is usurping his father's power. Absalom was saying, I am king now. And Reuben was saying, I am the head of this family now. Very much like the the parable of the prodigal son, when the son asks for the inheritance, the son is actually saying, Father, I really don't care about you. I don't love you. I love your stuff. Give me your stuff now. He's wishing his father dead. Same thing is going on here. He he was going to get firstborn status, but he wanted it now. And there are two lessons we can learn from Reuben's sin. One is even confessed sin has consequences. James Boyce writes, presumably, Reuben's sin was confessed, he was forgiven, he was still saved, but there were still consequences to that sin. Firstborn status is still taken away. And the tribe of Reuben will be no longer lead the family. As a matter of fact, in all of history, there's no record of any of Reuben's descendants doing any kind of leadership roles. Do you know where the only leadership role you see in any of Reuben's descendants? It's in the book of Numbers. Their names are Dathan and Abiram. 
And with Korah, they led a rebellion against Noah. So even their leadership was abortive. To be clear, all sin is forgivable. Any sin. No sin is outside the reach of God's mercy. No sin. But there will still can still be consequences in your life for that sin. I can tell you right now that I have confessed and repented of my lifestyle in college, but I was dead drunk when I broke my two legs, and I still walk with a limp. God has forgiven me of that, but I still walk with a limp. I still have the consequences in my life. We also learn that sin has far-reaching effects. Reuben's sin just didn't affect him, but his generations. The tribe was forever affected by what he did that day. We live in an age that constantly tells us what goes on in your bedroom is your affair. doesn't affect anybody else. It's your business. And that has absolutely no standing in Scripture. The Bible, from the very beginning, explodes that notion. Right in chapter 3, we see Adam and Eve, and what they did affects me standing here this very moment and you sitting here this very moment. We have to come to terms with the fact that what you do in private, the sin you commit, affects us corporately. Sin is not a cloistered activity, but has far-reaching effects. All you have to do is, is think of that church that the pastor had, in, had infidelity and in how it ruined people's lives spiritually, literally shipwrecked people's lives. Or an affair that a man has and how it, it shipwrecks that whole family. And we just don't have to think of those big examples. Think of the smaller sins that we do, like gossiping and slandering behind people's backs that creates deep schism in families and in churches. Then consider the sinkhole that develops beneath Simeon and Levi's feet. They step forward for blessing and are told right out of the gates, you are weapons of violence. They're condemned for what they did decades earlier to the Shechemites in chapter 34, if you remember that. Dinah is kidnapped, their sister, and raped. And so they sit in the seat of God's judgment and they slaughter all the men. Of that town. And the consequence, verse 7, they're going to be divided and scattered. And that's exactly what happened. The tribe of Simeon was slowly absorbed into the tribe of Judah, no more. And the tribe of Levi was scattered around Israel, never having any land rights. But also look at verse 6. The consequence of their sin is not just that they'll be scattered, but also it's relational. Look at what Jacob says there. Let my soul come not into their counsel, O my glory, 
be not joined to their company. Jacob is expressing a distancing of relationship because of their sin. Sin hurts relationship. Sin has consequences on relationships. Whether it's in a marriage or deep friendship or families or in church or at work, when you sin towards somebody, against somebody, as we say in the Lord's Prayer, it has effects. It hurts the relationship. That's just a reflection of what sin does in your relationship with the Lord. Sin distances us relationally from the Lord. If you're sitting here and you're a believer, think of the sin in your own life. I really appreciated that Steve brought us here in a, in a, in, in, in a prayer of confession. I really appreciate that. I wasn't expecting that. That we could consider the sin in our own life. Isaiah 59.2 says, But your iniquities have separated you from God. Listen to the, how, how the words come together here. Listen. But your iniquities have separated you from God. Your sins have hidden his face from you. Ponder that for a moment. It's not God that is fleeing you. but you fleeing God. Sin is a barrier to your intimacy with God. That's why we're called to live, and Steve, you you brought this out so well, we're called to live a repentant lifestyle. In other words, it's not just before the Lord's Supper that you're to contemplate, confess, and repent your sin. That is to be going on, brothers and sisters, on a daily basis, multiple times a day. Because we sin in word and thought and deed all the time. Repentance is to be a daily activity. Blogger Daniel Colinda says this, to think of repentance as being only for the rank sinner, the unbeliever and prodigal is a mistake. Repentance is the practice of righteousness. We must constantly turn our hearts to God from darkness to light, from the flesh to the spirit, from the temporal to the eternal, from death to life. See, it's not just turning from our sin. It's actually turning to Christ. It's turning to something. We need to constantly refocus our hearts, refocus our attention and our affections on Christ and what he has done for us. It's a constant realignment for the Christian. If you're sitting here and you don't know Christ, I'm overjoyed that you're here. This is where you should be. But secondly, you have to know that sin is a barrier to even being in a relationship with God. Scripture tells us that a person cannot have a relationship unless they are perfect. No, I did not misspeak. You cannot have a relationship with God unless you are perfect. Unless you are sinless. 
unless God can look at you and say, that is a sinless person I'm looking at. Jesus in Matthew 5 in his Sermon on the Mount proclaims this. Be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. That's not an ideal. That's not something to shoot for. You have to be perfect to be in a relationship with God. And sin from the very beginning is a barrier to that relationship. He placed Adam and Eve outside the garden after they had sinned. Do you know why? Because they cannot exist in the presence of God if you're not perfect. And he put an angel there with a flaming sword. Do you remember that? That's a graceful thing that God did. I don't want you in my, my presence unless you are perfect. No relationship with God is possible unless you are sinless, perfect, faultless, impeccable. How are you feeling right now? Pastor, I don't know. Who will save me from this wretched body of death? A king. A king will save you. And that's really the end of of the sermon here. It's a royal redemption. It's a royal redemption story. There in verse 10, there's that wonderful prophecy of Christ, of the king coming. The scepter will not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until the tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. This is the last of the three great messianic prophecies in Genesis. In Genesis 3.15, we read about the snake crusher coming. In Genesis 22.18, God tells Abraham that through his offspring, all nations will be blessed. Through Abraham is coming this snake crusher. And here we're told that the Messiah will be a king. Through these three Prophecies were told that the Messiah will destroy the devil in his work. The Messiah will come through Abraham and redeem his people. And the Messiah will be a king. It will be a royal redemption. This is the prophecy that runs throughout scripture. Second Samuel 7, you have King David being told, Yep, it's through your line. You're not going to build a house for me. I'm going to build a house for you. And Isaiah 9 shows that This child that's coming will sit upon the throne of David. Daniel 7 tells us that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language will serve him. Jeremiah 23, this king in David's line will execute judgment and justice. In Zechariah 9, we're told that this king will come, not looking like a king, but riding on a donkey. You ever wonder why everybody was so excited when they saw Jesus coming into Jerusalem riding on a donkey? They were saying, Hosanna, the king is here. This is it. He's here to restore the kingdom of David. He's here to reinstate Israel as a world power. He's here here to execute judgment on the Roman Empire. 
Only that's not the enemy that Jesus came to destroy. He came to destroy the consequences of sin in our life. To restore a relationship with God. You see, it's true that the sin, the consequence of sin is distance in relationship with God. But our king brought a royal redemption by living a perfect life that you and I cannot. You know how I left you us sitting there thinking, how can, how can I be perfect? That's why, God, that's why Jesus lived this perfect life. He earned heaven. He lived a sinless life. And what he did is by going to the cross is he said, you know what? I will take your penalty, your curse, your consequences for your sin. And I will die. And if you place your trust in me, if you believe that I died for your sins, there's a great spiritual transaction that happens. Your sin gets credited to him and paid for and atoned for in Jesus Christ. And his perfect life is transferred into your account. And when God looks at you, if you've placed your trust in Christ, he sees perfection. He sees sinlessness. And that's why you can have a relationship with God. Our king did not remain in that grave, and on the third day he rose from the dead, completing his royal redemption. You see, he came as a king to reinstate us as children of God. That's the royal redemption. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. And Lord, we ask you to now minister to us through that wonderful ordinance that you have left for us to remind us of what we had just heard so that we can see with our eyes and touch with our hands and say along with John those same words. In Jesus' name, amen.